Welcome to another episode of the Agile Weekly Podcast. I'm Clayton Langlesigich. I'm Derek Neighbors. And I'm Roy Vandewater. And today we will be talking about the much talked about seven agile best practices that you don't necessarily need to do article. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's on the uh, Agile D Zone. It's called Seven Agile Best Practices That You Don't Need to Follow by Jim Bird. So the first one, uh, we're going to talk a few minutes each on each of these. So the first one's test driven development. Uh, that's one that somehow became kind of synonymous with Agile teams, that Agile teams do TDD. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you guys think? Do you have to do uh, TDD? No. Yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> All right, next. No. <laughs> right. So what, uh, you know, like, I guess let's explore a little bit why that became so pervasive. Why does everyone think that you have to do uh, TDD if you're doing Agile? Well, because there's a difference between agile and good. So, like, if you want to be good, <laughs> I think you have to do TDD. If you just want to be agile, like, yeah, you don't need to do TDD. Also, I mean, there's a huge feedback component to agile, right? It's all about, like, quick iterations and getting feedback early. And I think test-driven development is the programming embodiment of that. It's like the idea of, like, asking for feedback before you even start coding and then gaining feedback as you code towards the, the failing test. Do you think it'd be fair to say that you would have to do TDD if you were doing uh, extreme programming? Yeah, yes. I would say you would. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, I don't remember his full arguments on this, but I think it kind of comes down to, like, you know, studies say TDD is not as good. Like, if you, if you know what you're doing, then TDD is good. But if you don't know, um, yeah. the only time that I really say that TDD should be super optional would be if you're going to probably... If you're a startup, you've got a limited amount of money, and you know you have to meet the next gate, and you're slow at TDD because you don't know how to do it. If you are competent with TDD, there's no reason not to do it. If you know you're gonna be long term with a project, then there's no reason not to do it. So part of the argument also talks about that uh, statistically, there's an increase in complexity with TDD, oftentimes in terms of design, um, which I think is, I, I mean. It, I'd have to make assumptions, but I'm assuming it's based off of probably not knowing how to do TDD properly, like abusing the crap out of mocks and spies and all of those patterns, and uh, and creating tests that are really brittly coupled to the specific implementation. Hmm. Well, it doubles the lines of code, so therefore it's got to be twice as complex. <laughs> right. When people, when teams Speaking get- of doubling, <laughs> uh, pair programming, do you have to have two people working? Like, Do you have to do pairing if you're on an Agile team? No. And I kind of feel like you have to be, you have to be doing some form of pairing. Like it may not necessarily be pair programming, but like people working by themselves is is not a like that's not a team. Like let leave agile alone. Like I feel like a bunch of people working by themselves in isolation is not a team. So I almost feel like there has to be a pairing component, so at the, least in terms of like pair planning or pair design so or the, pair. So the only way you can do that is by pairing. No. No, I, I suppose not. And I suppose they very specifically mean pair programming. Yeah, because I go to a whole lot of planning meetings that aren't paired, but I think that the people are mm-hmm. co-creating solutions together. Sure. Again, this one to me is just like TDD. If you want to be good, you probably should pair. If you want to be agile, you don't have to pair. Right. Well, some of the arguments are for the idea like um, that some people don't like to pair, and some people uh, will be slowed down by other people like that. If I'm really good and Clayton sucks, you know, using a realistic example, then <laughs> what we would uh, what we would have is like uh, Clayton be slowing me down all of the time, which I think is uh, kind of the wrong way to look at it, which is more like I would be teaching Clayton some awesome new stuff that 
that, yeah. that he doesn't know yet. I think and they that, hit on, that's more important in the long run. They hit on there. He hits on some of the other common arguments about introverts versus extroverts and um, like smashing creativity and you won't have time to be innovative and all those kind of right. things. Right. Like, like you won't have the opportunity to just sit, go heads down and really solve complex problems. But then arguably, if you're pairing properly, you turn all your complex problems into simple ones and you don't end up with those types of huge, complex Rube Goldberg solutions. Yeah, well, I, I keep saying that, you know, the problem with exercising for me is it leaves less time for eating ice cream. And clearly this is a problem. <laughs> I mean... Okay, the next one is emergent design and metaphor. Uh, I, one thing I don't think... A lot of people, especially kind of the, the new Agile crowd, uh, I don't think they really have embraced metaphor at all. I don't ever hear people talking about the importance of metaphor, um, not now at least. So I can't speak without using metaphors. So like I think you have to have metaphors to be Agile. Now I do and remember it have to be sports metaphors. Yeah, it, not no, not always, <laughs> but usually just because sexual ones aren't a little, you know very you know reasonable to do it to work. Um, I will re- remember a conversation uh, uh, with uh, Ron, uh, with Chet, I believe, about this, and I think they kind of said that XP dropped the metaphor at some point, and I want to say that the reason they dropped it is because it's too fucking hard to do, which I think speaks volumes for like the shit that's really good is hard to do, and I think that people throw away the stuff that's hard to do first. I think that's yeah. why like BDD, um, if you. If you look at that and you talk about let's have ubiquitous language and let's have like a shared language, that's really difficult. And there's a lot of times where people can't even think of a way to describe some part of the system. And so they just throw it away. They give it up. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like you almost put in the box of the metaphor where you're like, well, this doesn't fit our metaphor, so I guess we can't do it. Right. right. Yeah. So I, I, like one thing that he talks about in the article is, you know, changing the metaphor or having to get rid of it or being like pigeonholed by it. Uh, but I think that just goes back to the if you. If the metaphor is meaningful, I think you can make it work most of the time. And if you need to change it, I think you can have a good reason to change it. So it's interesting to pair this up with emergent design because I don't necessarily put those two in the same box in my head. Like emergent design, the idea being like, I'm not going to design this entire thing up front. I'm going to be able to build on top of it as it goes on. Well, I think then that's some of the fallacy that like in Agile, you don't ever talk about design, Mm -hmm. which I think is in practice not true. I think if you go... To like high performing agile teams, they're talking a lot about design. They just don't do the huge design upfront stuff, but right. they don't not talk about it. And it stays flexible the entire time, so nobody's like totally stuck on a particular. How, how are you going to grow your architecture EPN if you have emergent design? Now, come on, there you go. Uh, okay, daily. Well, I want to go back oh, on this yeah, one a little bit, and the reason I want to go back on this is like look at look at some of the most pro- prolific um, onboarding applications of. Uh, computer history. Okay, so if you look at Twitter, if you look at Facebook, if you look at some of these companies that have gone from zero users mm-hmm. to several hundred million users in a very short period of time, all of their architecture was created using emergent design from a standpoint of they didn't know what they didn't know. Like the one I always come back to was if, you know, there, I believe there's an article, we'll try to see if we can get it in the show notes where, you know, Twitter had done a ton of performance testing, had done a ton of load. They had done a, a ton of stuff where they could deal with, you know, literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of people follows per second happening on the system. What do you know? Ashton Kutcher goes on David Letterman and says, I want to be the first person to a million followers. Everybody go follow me right now. Total edge case in, yes, we support 100,000 users supporting, you know, uh, following another user, but we don't support 100,000 people following the same user 
in a one second time frame, right? So like, how do you deal with, you know, those things as they come up? You can't cover every edge case. And I think continuous deployment has moved us to a point where what you're really doing is saying we discover by what the system, the feedback, the system gets us and we're able to adapt and deploy so continuously and so quickly that it doesn't feel like we've got architecture problems. And I think this is something that the old school, old guard just can't deal with. It's like, no, but we have to get it right the first time. Yeah, I kind of feel like if if you don't have emergent design, some form of emergent design, then you are, by definition, You're not screwed. doing agile, yeah. right? Because like I feel like that's, uh, other than like the, the human relationship and uh, the that component of it, I feel like the ability to pivot and change your mind as you gain new information is like the fundamental core. What about daily stand-ups? Getting together, Roy, you just mentioned the human component. Getting together and talking to mm-hmm. other people on the team on a daily basis. Is that something you have to do? Well, is that what they said? So I, I don't know the, the wording. I think if, to me, if they said daily stand-ups... No, I don't think daily stand-ups are mandatory. Do I think the people on the team need to talk to each other through it, at least one time throughout the day? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that that that, that is necessary. Oh, so, like to really nitpick, I think they're getting at is does everyone have to stand up? Well, we didn't we did an entire episode on that, right? Like on whether or not you should stand up during a stand-up. I think we came to determine that yes, you should. I think there's also it goes back to do you want to be good or do you want to be agile? I think you could be totally agile without doing any kind of formal stand up. But mm-hmm. I think if you want to be good, there it's just like using a whiteboard versus using a tool, right? Like, can what? you can you do things without using whiteboard? Sure, but like you get some benefits from the other one that you don't. I'm guessing that part of this is driven through uh, experiencing bad stand ups that are a waste of your right. time, because just like every any other meeting, like you can screw this one up and make right. it just a total waste of everybody's time. Where it's just like a status report, and I go, "Yesterday I did X, today I'm right. going to do Y, no blockers," and then on, and nobody's listening to each well, other, and like you're totally defeating the. Well, point. well I, I see another one too with a lot of teams that are actually co-located and within physical proximity. We sit sit next to each other all day long, and we pair. So why do we need a stand up? We've got a physical board. We sit next to each other. We talk to each other every day. Everybody already knows what everybody's doing. Why the hell do we need to do a stand-up every day? Well, I think what's funny is that most of the time those people don't actually know what is happening. No, they don't. I mean, right. but, but, but I mean, I, that's, you know, yeah. I, I, I see that too. Right. Uh, speaking of everybody knowing everything, what about collective <laughs> code ownership? Like, is the idea that everyone can work on any part of the system and everybody knows what the system to some degree, is that a reasonable thing? Or should you just... Say, well, it's okay that Derek doesn't know how well, to do this. Well, some part. people are too dumb to work on parts of the system. Right, they shouldn't that be allowed to work on parts of the system. I mean, people won't say that, but that's what they're saying when they yeah. say that. No. I like, not everybody's as knowledgeable. Not everybody's a god like me, so, I mean... Well, this, this, actually, this article does say something specifically along those lines, and not everybody should be allowed to modify certain parts of the system. Right. I think they're getting at that. It's not realistic that that is the case. It yeah, isn't but, realistic that everybody on the team can work on any part of the system. But to me, that sounds like, why is your system so complex... Well, what it sounds to me is, why do you hire stupid fucking people? Like, I mean, if you have people that you hire to code and you don't let them go to certain parts of the code because they're not competent to go to the code, like, why are they employed by you? That is a good point. Or if it's you don't let them go into the code because the person who owns that code is extremely territorial over it, then why do you have that territorial person employed? And why are you allowing them to boss you around? And so, like, I think this one flies in the face of, I don't know if you could be agile without having collective code ownership. Because the first time you have to say, sorry, Clayton's on vacation. I can't really deal with this problem. Like, by default, you're not able to respond. That's true. You can't. You couldn't respond to that change, right? Yeah. Um, 
so we've heard that user stories are you know representation of a conversation, but why wouldn't you write every requirement as a user story? Is it unagile to to write um, you know have a requirement on the system that isn't a user story? This one I think they're pretty in line with. Like I mean, I think that the formula, you know, the mul- multiple formulas that exist out there are really good. I think they help people write good, mm-hmm. small, you know, I mean, you know, part of the system. But I think somebody could go write one or two sentences on a a board and and still get stuff done just fine if you have the conversation. I really think all it is, I, I think the actual card and the conversation are far more important than the story themselves. Right. So, like, I don't think I I almost think that the uh, like a, one of the one of the values of a user story is that it can't give you enough information to substitute for a conversation. Right. Like, I can't write a user story that tells you everything you need to know. So you have to come talk to me. Yeah, they talk about using like a use case or a test case or a wireframe or something, mm-hmm. which I think are great examples of things you can add on to a user story as you have that conversation. But I don't think it's an and or. And I also don't think if you were to say that you didn't write everything in user stories, I could see somebody getting a little crazy with writing too many use cases. Mm-hmm. And then you go off the deep end in that regard. Right. And then before you know, it, you have a full like spec outline ahead of time so that we don't have to spend this entire time arguing with the developers and negotiating acceptance criteria. Yeah. Well, I mean, you get off the, the rails pretty quick, right? So yeah. if you know, you don't keep it nice and short, then we start to assume like, Oh, Roy, you've got, you know, 80 pages of cucumber specs for me. So like, I don't need to actually ask you anything about the system it's because clearly you've thought yeah. of everything. Right. Yeah. The last one talks about relying on a product owner. So the single ringable neck and having one person that's supposed to be the gateway to the customer. Um, the thing that's odd about this one, I guess, is that's pretty much how, you know, if most Agile shops are doing some form of Agile, they're probably doing Scrum and they probably have a product owner. So how did, uh, like, how did all the Agile people miss the boat on this one? Hmm. I, I almost want to say that, like, I kind of think that it'd be okay if there was more than one product owner or like it doesn't necessarily have to be a product owner as long as there's just one backlog. But then, I I don't know, because then you still get into the problem of like if you have this one backlog and you have like two different people that are both your boss and they're arguing over what a specific story is supposed to be, like I could still see a ton of problems there. Like you have to have somebody that makes the final call. Somebody at the top of your organization has the authority to say this and not that. Well, then I think there's a distinction between being the voice, like the the single point of contact with a customer and the person that makes decisions. So Mm. should the only person that ever talks to customers be one person in the product owner? Probably not. And you should probably find lots of different ways to have that interaction and get that feedback. But I don't think the idea that you can have like a committee, you know, if you had more people talking to the customer and more people making decisions, I don't think that's what you would want. So this this one's really odd for me in the sense of, I'm starting to find that actually in some ways I believe having a product owner is not agile. And part of it is I think that if a team, when I look at small startups and I see uh, them do things with no product owner, where they really are doing things by committee, they really are doing things by kind of unanimous decision, I think it's because they've got strong vision and they're aligned. And so to me, like the need of having a product owner who's like the one all that says like, yep, you know, I'm just going to make the decision so we can move forward. Like, I think that's almost a crutch that says that you're not providing enough vision that the team is actually aligned behind the product. Because if they were, you could get to a unanimous decision fairly quick. You could be biased towards that action. So that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about it like that, that really the reason why we always say or we always think like you need to have a product owner is because you have the dissenting viewpoints you don't know which way to go 
but that's because traditional decision making is made by uh, you know majority vote, in which case you have a bunch of people that aren't happy. But if you're always unanimous, th- uh, then you have a team that's acting as one anyway. So it's like right. it's one single ring. And, and you probably have a much better product. And I, I think, like, I definitely think that a product. To be clear, I think product ownership is very necessary in most organizations mm-hmm. because they're they're doing they're having to deal with them as a dysfunction to how they currently work. But I think that it, you could absolutely be on a, a highly agile, adaptive, high-performing team and deliver great product and not have a product owner. All right, I think we're out of time. Thanks, guys. Is there something you'd like to hear in a future episode? Head over to integrumtech.com slash podcast where you can suggest a topic or a guest. Looking for an easy way to stay up to date with the latest news, techniques, and events in the Agile community? Sign up today at agileweekly.com. It's the best Agile content delivered weekly for free. The Agile Weekly podcast is brought to you by Integrum Technologies and recorded at Gangplank Studios in Chandler, Arizona. For old episodes, check out integrumtech.com or subscribe on iTunes. Need help with your Agile transition? Have a question and need to phone a friend? Try calling the Agile Hotline. It's free. Call 866-244-8656.